Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. We're the Barkindia people call the Barker, ourselves Barker Weembitches. That means we are come from the Darling River and just on that... We treat the Barker as our mother. Always was, always will be. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. This year's NADOC Week theme of Always Was, Always Will Be is an invitation to all Australians to embrace the true history of our nation, a history dating back thousands of generations. The theme is recognition of the 65,000 plus years of which First Nations peoples have occupied and cared for this continent and an acknowledgement of the spiritual and cultural connection Indigenous people have to the land. To pay tribute, tonight you'll hear from three respected figures within our communities who have aided in the management and protection of Indigenous land and culture for future generations. It's hard to believe that this time last year we were in the midst of a bushfire emergency with entire communities destroyed and the deaths of 34 people. At the height of the crisis, there was a growing community interest in traditional Aboriginal fire practices and how they can be applied in land care strategies today. Earlier this year, I caught up with Indigenous land management expert, Uncle Victor Stephenson. Victor has been learning Indigenous fire practices since he was a teenager and is helping to reintroduce the method across the country. Well, cultural fire and well, Indigenous fire management is looking after the land and using fire and utilising fire in many ways. And it's more than just lighting up the country. And we all know it's for cooking and ceremony and for healing and medicine and signalling and communication. There's so many things. And when we look at fire in its natural course on its landscape, then it becomes something even more special. Because when the lightning strikes... The fire is put to the ground and it then burns and burns the country. And if we don't manage the country, then that fire will, you know, burn all the resources and burn all our foods and burn all the, me- all the medicines. And so the people learn to regulate that fire and learn to live with it in a way that over many thousands of years to be able to regulate that fire in a way that's beneficial for the country and work out how that fire fits into the landscape and different soil types and ecosystems and the story for fire for each different place and tree and even for places that don't need fire. It's learning how to regulate those natural elements as tools that look after the landscape and right down to a real fine wire of applying fire in different ways to produce food and to look after our resource and to be spiritually and culturally in in bind as well. So it's a real layered and complex knowledge system, and it's more than just burning the country. And that's why the benefits of it and the importance of it is so important and so layered as well, and why it's so important that we lead with Indigenous fire management. And we're not talking about, oh, you know, let's Aboriginal people take over the fire and no one else involved, not like that. We're talking in a way that let's empower this knowledge and give the capacity to demonstrate itself and and how it will provide more benefits than just burning country to save our modern life and property, but our entire landscape and how that fits into us culturally and how that fits into solutions into the future. 
I was wondering if you could perhaps give an example of, I know you've worked around the country, but perhaps of one place where you've been involved with this land management practice, just to explain what happens over time when you go in and start to make the country healthy again. I guess one of the stark examples would be working in the Bundaberg regions and Western Australia regions and the southern regions over there, but particularly around the southern Queensland, where traditional owners have gotten land back that is just completely cleared and there's no trees left and it's just filled with introduced grasses and there's been cattle ridden for 150 years. And you know, I asked them, I said, what do you want to do with this? And they want to say, like, I, I want to get this back to country and how do we do that? And when we look at a country that's been totally cleared and mismanaged for so long and had a different use and has completely changed in many ways, it doesn't take away the natural law of that landscape, just what that country is and its identity. And just like Indigenous people, like, doesn't matter how they grow up or, you know, if they didn't get to live on their own country, they're still Aboriginal people and they still have an identity that can be recovered. And that's exactly the same with uh, landscapes. So with that, healing landscapes is really a big part of that. And when we look at the country, we look at the soils, then we know what trees belong in that place. So we know we apply that same type of management to heal landscapes. So when we see a darker soil that's more like gum tree country, and we'll say, well, we'll burn this uh, introduced grass at this time of year to see if we can put the right timing in fire to produce the right plants and slowly recover a cleared landscape back by using that original knowledge and from that practical baseline apply different adjustments to the situation at hand with the different problems that country has to bring that right temperature and that right type of fire back to country to promote the right plants. And it's quite like a, an artist with a palette of paint and you're doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that to try and get it back in the middle again. Soon enough, we, you know, within a few years, we start to see trees growing back and the native grasses coming back. And they are the indicators that tell us we're on the right track and right road to healing landscapes. And in some cases, that can take a long time, up to 10 to 20 years or more of constant managing and looking after country. And in other cases, it can be quite quicker. But there's all different situations and scenarios. And it's not just one thing that fits all. But what is the case is that there's an underpinning knowledge system that is the identity of that landscape that we work from. One of the things that strikes me when I've read your work or heard you talk is that you do really get the sense of the interconnectedness of everything, that it really is a system. And you've just been explaining a little bit about the connection between the country and the spirit. But the other thing that you've touched on and is a really central part of this is the actual land management practice itself is a community effort. And because the community does it together, there are a whole range of other dynamics that take place because of that. Can you talk a little bit about how this sort of land management practice actually strengthens community spirit? Well, there's um, every time that we go out on country and every community that want to do this work, it's a phone call or an email that I get from them. And that's the only way that I go and visit a community is when they really want to make this project for themselves. And it's successful straight away when the community's, um, when it's their own aspiration. A lot of the time, people are just so hungry to get out on country and manage their landscapes. And time and time again, I just see healing um, that's happening. And it's just amazing to see a lot of young people 
um, who are really shy and don't want to talk in public and their heads down, they're looking to the ground and see the transformation in them when they finally start to connect with their landscapes and their own country and they see these indicators and they learn something new and then they watch the fire and they sort of connect to the landscape in a way that the land starts to show them stuff and it's just incredible and that's what I write about that chapter with healing people. It's such an important chapter because what it does for people is just magical and that's that cultural identity and people finding themselves through their own landscapes and what I tell people is that you know, you might have lost a lot of your elders and you think you may have lost a lot of your knowledge for some, but, you know, that landscape there that is your country, that's your oldest living elder you have and it's still alive and that's where your elders learn from and your ancestors learn from and that's their identity and their blood and their country and it's just being able to unlock that knowledge and to be able to activate it in some way where people can actually start to read it from their own landscape. It's such a, a healing process. and The way that fits for non-Indigenous people as well, it's also exciting and beneficial. I've seen people who are just totally anti-fire or, you know, don't really get along with Aboriginal people or, or have um, opinions and problems totally change their mindset and their uh, outlook at life once they experience what we're talking about on country and connecting to landscapes the same way. So it's something that I see that is really crucial to exercise. And this is a big part of learning on country and, and connected to landscapes and where fire is a just introduction for the possibilities down the track socially, uh, right across the board for people in Australia from non-Indigenous to Indigenous. And so I just see that if we keep on this path, I can just see more benefits into the future, particularly with getting people to work together and to evolve culture as a whole as well. You talked earlier about the fact that you don't go in and work with a community unless they've asked you in. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how once you've had that invitation, you start to work with the community, what sort of process you go through with them, what happens in the workshops that you run. It's the practical way in which you get a community focused on this kind of land management. Oh, well, they usually they'll be working with an agency sometimes or, you know, whatever partners in their region and the communities would work through some of those or get in touch with me themselves just to say, hey, we need you to come down. We wanted to work on some fire projects down here. We're really interested, you know, in a real basic sense. You know, and that's really important in terms of cultural protocol because when you're sharing knowledge and you're working in the space um, of traditional knowledge and you know, it's really important that it's based on shared knowledge. And the shared knowledge platform is where we can work together. It's a place where we can help each other. And it's probably, you know, the strongest of all when it comes to traditional knowledge. I mean, you've got two components of knowledge. You know, you've got the sensitive knowledge that's sacred and that's just uh, language or stories or, you know, spirit figures in their own country or whatever. You know, that's really sacred knowledge or special medicines. But when we talk on the shared knowledge platform, it's, it's our basic responsibilities that underpins us and our general health and looking after lands to keep it healthy. The health of that and ourselves is, is something that is shared knowledge. And you can say to people, hey, you better burn your country, otherwise you're going to get a wildfire, you know. So sharing that knowledge in a way that it underpins our kinship and our similarities 
and it's through the landscapes that give us that sharing process through the trees, the soils, and the similarities in vegetation and things that are the same but different. And when we focus on the country and we lead with the country and we respectfully are led by the traditional owners from that country with their own aspirations, then what we have is the right process and sharing knowledge and for that to be accepted. And when that's applied practically on the country and people learn off their own country and the fire does exactly what it does and plants grow back and animals come back and it shows all the indicators of success, then that's a really special thing because what that is is, is not fire management anymore. And obviously it is applying fire, but what it actually is is rebuilding knowledge systems from landscapes. And that is such an important thing because when that matches with people's language and it matches with their good feeling and their stories on country, it matches with songs. And if it matches with the knowledge they do have of their trees and their country, then what we get is all these things that line up that start to get us close to the true knowledge, the most accurate way of recovering our knowledge that is culturally ours and comes from our own country. And that can be helped through different neighbouring clan groups and other clan groups in the region that have the same similarities or same country types that share basic shared knowledge to help join the dots for many clan groups. So working with the Karanda mob, for example, and Jabagai, and, you know, I was with the rangers there and we were on country and they had their linguists there. And the linguist was listening and they had recovered that language and retaught that language in schools. But there were words in that language that they didn't understand. Like there was a language word that meant white smoke. And they didn't know what that word was. Although they knew the word and they knew the language name, but what did it really mean? And it wasn't until we applied practice on country and started to apply the practice on landscapes that the white smoke showed itself and why it was important and the clean smoke and the good smoke for the trees and the smoke that we produce when we burn fires and when we only burn the grass. It was so significant and it was an indicator that we're burning the right way. So, you know, the language starts to link up with all these indicators and just those amazing moments where you see people's eyes light up and them just grow from one point to another in their understanding that's probably you know the most important part of this work is that rebuilding of knowledge and sharing knowledge principles and indicators through the shared knowledge realm through indicators of country can allow us to rebuild knowledge systems and help to rebuild a lot of knowledge from country that would have been lost otherwise it's amazing isn't it it sits there almost waiting for you to find it it's not lost it's waiting to be found that's right well, when it comes to implementing the fire and getting the right fire back on country, it's going to take a lot of work. And it's going to be a massive corner to turn because, you know, we're dealing with mindsets and we're dealing with people. I mean, it's easy to get out there and start managing, even though it's a big country and we need to get people trained. You know, we're looking at fire programs where communities in their own regions can get out and start managing the lands and have the support of training and the exchanges of knowledge with other fire practitioners from similar landscapes and helping each other. And the way that we've been doing it already is just community mentoring community and coming to each other's workshops and supporting each other at workshops and sharing knowledge and doing burns on each other's country and 
it's sort of got us to a point at the moment where that started with Aboriginal communities, but also involving non-Indigenous communities as well. And what we've been able to achieve, and when I say we, I mean all of the communities involved to date and everyone involved, is we've created that awareness now and a network. And there's a way forward and something that people want to try and um, start to lead on. When we first did our workshops, we didn't get hardly get any indig- uh, non-Indigenous people and you know, we didn't get any pastoralists. It was very just for our Aboriginal communities, but that's sort of changed now. And we've got everyone on coming to our, our workshops now from all walks of life. And over the last 27 years and to this point, a lot of that community is ready to go. And there's a lot of regions with black and white and agencies and private landholders that all want to see a program happen in their own area. You mentioned there's been an increase in community interest. And of course, you mentioned that over the years, decades, you've been doing this work. Community interest has increased over that time. And and obviously, after what happened over summer, increased even more. But in all of that increased interest, has there been an increased interest from government departments in this kind of work as opposed to the community itself? But I'd have to say that the governments have been probably the least. I mean, I've had a few calls from governments over the time when the wildfires were happening and a few ministers, but it wasn't anything substantial. It was like, hey, uh, we're here, you're doing Indigenous fire. Uh, We're sort of encouraging you to put a submission in, and that would be about it. (laughs) And there was no real genuine commitment from government or even, you know, the urge to even talk or even to sit down and work out why is this happening and how can this really help out, you know, the, the Indigenous fire management? What can we do to, to solve these problems? It's been quite weak. And when we look at our general governments, like on the ground, last state, just our agencies that are working with everyday people on the ground and national parks and other agencies around the communities, you know, the people want to see change at that level. But it's the political, that high level that still haven't got it. They still haven't come out on country to experience anything. And I'm still yet to hear if they actually have listened or what is going to be the solution from here because I haven't heard from them. So we're just on the same situation where we're just continuing on the same way we have, building on the community networks that we have and trying to find some support in any way possible to kick off these fire programs in different regions. And that's all we can do is just keep going the way we have gone. That's Indigenous land management expert and fire practitioner Uncle Victor Stephenson. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, to coincide with this year's NAIDOC Week, we're highlighting efforts to protect, preserve and manage Indigenous land and cultural knowledge. Coming up, we'll remind you of the Murray-Darling River crisis and its impact on the Barkindji people of far west New South Wales. Right now, though, some music. This next song was written from the perspective of a young bachelor man witnessing the arrival of Captain James Cook to his homeland. Here is Birds featuring Fred Leone with Bargilaram Bargain. Maga, maga, 
Patiently waiting for someone I ain't never seen before to say he's a captain of men, but ain't believing our love. From the land of the white skin, he's self-righteous, a murder without license. With the spear, I'm the nicest, thinking that I might just wait till night hits. Then I move in silence, when the moon at its highest, and my soul is defined. I'm consumed by desire to kill Any white devil wanna test my will Then he finna get burnt by the fire I feel Look him in the eye and hold his spirit still He's hoping I'm catching but I know I will Stand on the shoreline Coop man coming Mata wanna cross mine Wanna take it from me Fire in my eye But we ain't running Wanna mother let's ride Stand on the shoreline Coop man coming Mata wanna cross mine Wanna take it from me Fire in my eye But we ain't running Wanna mother let's ride Say that it came in peace, but our blood still stains the beach. Roll the dice, we gon' play for keeps. The sacred place ain't a place to preach. No, no, no. No white faith and a black belief. No, no, no. Better pray that our spears don't reach. He's cold, white, hot, I'ma make it bleed. Leading to the first fleet. Sicker than disease that he bring from overseas. No matter where you flee, I will always be. In the darkest of night, your descendant will see me. Stand on the shoreline. Come rain, come in. Mother wanna cross mine. Wanna take it from me. Fire in my eye. But we ain't running. Wanna mother, let's ride. That's Melbourne-based rapper Birds featuring Fred Leone with Bargy Laram Bargain. The song was written for the NITV documentary Looky Looky, Here Comes Cookie, which explored Captain James Cook's arrival from a First Nations perspective. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, 
you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. Environmental and heritage protection emerged as a key issue throughout this year with the destruction of several culturally significant sites. In recent years, though, it has been the health of our waterways which has been of most concern. In early 2019, a mass fish kill in the Menindee Lakes region of far west New South Wales made national headlines. It was the final straw for traditional owner groups who for more than three decades have watched the once thriving river system deteriorate. Uncle Badger Bates is a Barkindji elder and has had a lifelong association with the Barker Darling Waterway. As you're about to hear, Uncle Badger is a staunch advocate for a healthy river system, which he says provides holistic benefits to local communities. We the Barkindji people call the Barker, ourselves Barker Weembitches. That means we are come from the Darling River and just on that we treat the barker as our mother. Like, without the barker, we are nothing, and it must stay healthy. And every tributary river that flows into it must stay healthy because they are the river veins of our mother, the barker. Those veins must keep healthy and make other rivers stay healthy along with them. So that's just a rough thing how we feel. And also it's hard to try and keep the river healthy because of the irrigation and all that. Uncle, could you tell us for people who haven't seen it what the current state of the Murray-Darling Basin is? It's, uh, it's just shocking. It's disheartening. I'll be 72 in October and this is the first time i ever seen the Barker in a state like it is now. And what breaks our heart most is Burnda, that's what we call the big Murray Cod or Darling River Cod. Yesterday we went down to Menindee and, and to see him take the cod from the home and a lot of my old cousins and that was down on the river bank crying and even the fishery followed what was taking them. They was upset and they had tears in their eyes and it was a and they said, Look, we'll try and look we'll look after them and we'll make sure that they come home one day or their babies, the little fellow will come back. And to us that is to take something out of a river, what the cod is really protected and when it's spawned, you're not allowed to catch them to eat, you know, to get a feed because we respect and we look after them. But the government people can take water and kill them and there's nothing done. And that is shocking. And Uncle, can you maybe just describe, you talk about how this river is, is, is your, like your mother. When you were younger, what kind of a relationship did you have with it? We... With the river, it is back then. It was like a supermarket to us back in the days when I was growing up, because a lot of us, like me, I was I had fair skin and I was a target for stolen generation. But I was read on the river and said, "Don't go into town. Stay on this side." And this was our supermarket. We went there. We got everything, and it really looked after us. I travelled up and down the river with my grandmother, dodging the welfare and that, and and go and meet other people in different tribes, you know, and all that. And they was good, they welcomed us there, but 
to see the state of the river now is just, it can't do anything anymore. Even the little water spider and other little things, and they, they vanish and the river mussel is a big, healthy big mussel and it's really thick, but that's dying and the skin is, the shell of the mussel is getting real brittle and nobody is doing any studies on it. And in towns like Menindi now, there are little kids down there where the fish are dying and these kids, they, they've got a shower in the water and they're breaking out in sores and everything, but there's no concern for those kids, you know. It's just very disheartening and our government is not listening. And now it's getting close to voting time. You'll get someone from a government come out, then the next lot will come out, then the next lot will come out and they all saying, yes, we're going to do this. But when we ask them the question, are you going to make the barker flow, they'd look into it, you know. And and to, they just like, we just call them mirror people, you know. They're not going to give you an answer, but they would look into it. And it's just like looking into mirrors. It's just stupid how they're going on. You make a really important point there, Uncle. There's been a lot of focus on what, the impact of the droughts been on farmers and not really much discussion at all or attention given to its impact on the Indigenous communities that have lived in those areas for 65,000 years. Beyond just what's happening with the river, what impact are you seeing out there? Really, really bad. One of the stupidest things they say, and I'm sorry, is they'll come out from the cities and tell us you know, there's a drought on. We know that. We're living in a drought. Us black people are getting blacker from the sun because of the drought and the white people are going black and, and yet they've got to take to tell us about a drought. Then they'll come along and say, oh, the Menindee Lakes, you've got evaporation, this and evaporation, that. We know that, but they're not telling us that evaporation does make rain, you know, and, and they're not listening to their scientists they just come out, they want to do more work on the Minindy Lakes and we say, no, leave it alone because there is a native title over it and we want to make sure that the barker have water in it before they do anything else and, and make more infrastructures which is going to take more water away. And, yeah, but what they do is they'll get a map and look at a piece of paper and put a couple of marks and say, yes, we can do this, yes, we can do that. Well, from now on, us Barkindy people and uh, other people around us, like Aboriginal people, we've got to say in how our country should be managed, but then they will come up with a plan and say, this is what we're going to do, and then we don't see them again. We'll say, no, we want this and we want that, and we don't see them again. The thing with the Barker is they got this thing what they, they buy in this water back and they're sending some down, they're calling it, environmental water to me that is shut up water now you see it now you don't but you know we got our native title back in 2015 then in that 2015 and just before that they started taking water out the barker so what we really need us aboriginal people and we are entitled to it and i'm saying all aboriginal people got to be entitled to cultural water, all Aboriginal people, not just us Barkany people. So if we have the shut-up water coming down, then 
we get our cultural water coming down, we can store our cultural water at the Menindee Lakes and try and solve some of the problem, what's going on, and that stuff will be stored there in a wetland managed by us. Then if someone needs some water, we got it to help go down. If it worked that way with our, the environmental water going through, there'd be water stored for South Australia to flash them out of the Murray out, and there will be the Barker cultural water, what we will manage. If we do that, the river, and like I talked about before, the river is our mother, if we can get this done, then the veins of the river will stay wet and they will start pumping a healthy environment for us. That's the only way we can make it work. You lay out a very clear, thoughtful plan that understands the environment very deeply and yet you um, also make the reflection that governments aren't listening to Aboriginal people. What would you like to say to the governments? What I'd like to say to the government, give us our cultural water. We are entitled to compensation of what they've done with Tanda and all that. If we got that compensation, some of that could be the water, water back in the Barker, then that way Aboriginal people will be healthy again. Our crime rate, our crime rate around towns like Menindee, Wilcannia, Burke, Walgett, right up there, soon as the water go out of the river, the crime rate go up. Soon as it's back in, the crime rate go down. I had some of the sisters from up that way the other day, from around the Walgett area, sitting down with the interview, and she was crying. I sat here in Broken and I cried with her because I could feel her frustrations. If the people, just the government people, they got to listen to Aboriginal people and other people what live along the Barker because we all got our culture, our heritage in different sense, but sometimes it mixes up. If we can get that Barker flowing, everyone will be healthy. And the next thing I'd like to say, Western New South Wales, from Burke right down to Wentworth, that's our country, that's Barkindy country. And in that part of that country, and that part was developed from the sheep and the bullocks back, not from cotton. And I don't mind people growing fruit and, you know, and trying to make a living like that. We can eat fruit. We can't eat cotton. And the cotton people, they're doing what the government is letting them do. And when I say that, I mean the government is not making them have proper meters on their pump they are just letting them have open slither because there's a lot of money in that cotton for them. Where us, people what live from Burke down, was there depending on just a bit of fruit around Menindee and that, and, and down past Menindee, they don't care about us. They don't care what colour you are. All they care about is our votes. When it's voting time, they will all come out and they will tell us this and tell us that then after that we don't see him again. Uncle, you talk about the huge strain this has on, on elders who have the 
cultural responsibility for the river and the land and the transmission of culture. And you've also spoken about its impact on young people from the impact of being in the water and getting sores or rashes Mm. and also the correlation with the crime rates. It's obviously having a big impact on the communities. How are the elders keeping people strong? It's really hard. Some of our elders... And, and I see them in a black and white, they just give up and we just, they just pass away. Our young people, they're committing suicide and even at a town like Brogan Hill, it's 100 k's from Menindig. Here, you see them walking around here and, and they make you sorry, they're like zombies, they're on drugs and all that because there's nothing for them to do. And it's 100 k's away from the barker then what the government done last year to top it off and say how stupid it was, we got a pipeline from Menindi to Broken Hill, which is 100 k's of the crow flies. So what they do now, our smart government, they let the water flow past the Menindi down to Barker, flow past Menindi, go down to Wentworth, which is 300 k's away from Broken Hill, then they put a pipeline in for about $50 million or something and it's uh, uh, supposed to supply Brogan and help Brogan Hill and they pump it from the Murray. How can us Barkindy people, other people, practice our do our cultural practices in a pipe? We can't and that's what we keep telling them. And since that pipeline in here, people are just getting worse on drugs and that and I don't blame them. You know, they, they make us sorry because they got nowhere to go. And to prove the point then that this pipeline's not going to work, it don't get started until April this year. And now our water supply in Menindi is just about run out. And so it proved that they are not going to let the barker flow. They're going to pump the Murray dry and in about 12 or 18 months they're going to kill the Murray. It will happen. Mm. In all of that, Uncle, you've been a great advocate for the Barkindji people and Aboriginal people. Generally, how do you stay strong? It's just that when I see the young kids, sorry, I'm just about ready to cry, but when I see the young kids and walk up and say, how are you going and thank you, that makes me stronger, okay? And I'm sorry for breaking up about that, but it's the kids and the old people and they just make me strong with us. I've got to keep on doing it. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. As you've just heard, the mismanagement of culturally significant waterways can have long-term detrimental effects on traditional owner groups. In the top end, the remote community of Borolula has been fighting to secure water safety for its members for the past seven years. Following a waste fire at the MacArthur River mine in 2013, which contaminated local water supplies, traditional owners have been demanding safe drinking water and healthy rivers to supply the local town camps and surrounding homelands. Custodian Auntie Nancy McDinney has been a leading advocate for safe waterways in the region. The river is really poison, toxic. We cannot fish there anymore in that river. We used to have bush tucker along the river, both sides of the river, 
as you come from down to MacArthur. Our old people used to paddle there with the canoe. And I was a little girl. We used to drink that water before the mine was open, even when it was uh, long before that, you know. We used to go and hunting, fishing. And fishing was the main food, you know, and everyday eating food, fish. And it's the toxic waters, rivers going right down Carrington Mount, Crooked River. Come out to my grandfather country, we call it in our language, Rabundur and Charga, my father country. And we don't know if it's like all the sea turtle, we eat all the sea turtle, shell, did we get it out of the mangroves and shell along the coast? We don't know whether to eat it or not. It's probably poison. No one knows, but I think that water was... The toxic water used to come every year through the MacArthur River down. As you stand in the wet season, because the river always be full of water just coming up to Garawa One Camp, and you can smell it. You can smell the poison from the MacArthur. They was talking about that they had, we had a problem with the pipe, but it's not a pipe. It's from the river. Our old people used to drink and eat from the river. We cannot do eating and fishing anymore in there. We have to go about 100 k's to Robinson or to Weirin and Fletcher. Just a good place to go and fishing. Because we can't fish anymore in Bordel, it's poison. It is poison, but no one are telling people, you know, like, it's go down every every wet season, big wet season we have poison go down there. But some of our people, they go fish, fish. We told them not to eat from the river. Some of our people now, we worry about that's too many of our family in Darwin Hospital on dialysis. We don't know where it's come from. I think when they're eating the fish, I think the fish giving them kidney problem. There was a healthy people when the mine was not open. Earlier this year, residents at Borrolula were advised of lead contamination in the town's drinking water. What was the feeling amongst the community when the news came through? The news came from my, from the Northern Territory Clinic. Hospital, no, like nobody didn't know. I think I've got lead in my body too. I just don't know. And we need a doctor come and test all the people and children. I think we all got lead because we were eating it for a long time now. And the Glen Core, the one who's doing the mining up there, even the Northern Territory government saying, okay, for everyone to have meeting there, we're going to have this another problem from the fracking. We'll make it more bad. Now, and we don't want to live in big city. That's not our life there. Our life is out in the bush where we still eat bush tucker. And it's good to be at home, not somewhere else. I think we need the mine, miners and the government to close the Glencore mine because it's killing our people. When the water contamination happened, what services have been given to the community to support it you through this time? Early this year, in April, but I don't know what the date, but my grandson now, drinking it. Hey, don't you drink that water. It's, it's toxic. You could contaminate water. 
In Garwa camp, we're staying a bit further from uh, Garwa one camp too, but we're, we don't trust our own boat because there's a spring water and I think it's joined into the river. We live out in the Sandridge and Wanangla. And uh, I don't trust going down the river. It's poison. Last time we spoke, you talked about your love of hunting and collecting bush tucker, which was is obviously a big part of your life. Yeah. What does it mean for you as a traditional owner to be able to live off your land? Our old people from long, long time ago, we call it Wangalista, first generation, was living on the dirt, eating fish, eating bush tucker, from, you get it from the water, sea. So we eat in the mainland, we eat out in the sea, along the coastal area. Because that's our food. I grew up with that. We grew up from little kid eating all those bush tucker. And we we ate all the bush tucker before, like uh, Satellis came in. We was eating all them bush tucker. It's passed on from our old generation to us today, and we're still eating it today. And we need the land to be clean. Clean it or close it. That's why we're not happy. They're killing out too many people dying from what they eat in the river. You've been a, a strong advocate for your community on this issue. But the other issue that you have spoken strongly about is the importance of education for kids on country. Yeah. Why is that something that's so close to your heart? Well, we take our kids, we go camping. We made a documentary early this year because people like our government don't think that we, we don't take our children to the country. We took the, We made the documentary how our old people used to walk on the same track where we were walking there today, eating bush tucker, camping, dancing, teaching them culture and teaching them the country name of the land where they're walking through. So we got four clan. They came up from Rumbaria country, my mother's country, Manangora, the 70 Ks to Barula. And then my father's country, Mambalia, and then Wealia, and from Wealia right to Mumbalia again and right back to Rumbaria and Borula. We was teaching our children the same as my great-grandfather used to take us along that same track, or even there's the walk right down to Calvert Hill, which is 300 k's. There's the walk everywhere, even in the canoe, there's the paddle. Camping, taking our kids to the island, teach them about saltwater food. Our land is very important. And we we have to stay the way we stayed, like our great-grandfather, to be peace and healthy in the land. But when this mining mob coming in, they'll be killing all that stuff. And we don't want that to happen. We have to keep fighting and fighting to the end. Remote communities like Boralula are often scrutinised by governments and policy makers and there's been a push in the past to move people from those remote areas into town, which you, your community's always resisted. What do you love most about your community and your way of life? 
I mean, my way of life is good to be home. That's a really home. That's where we belong. And the government tried to push us around. I think that's why they're putting all the water. I think poison water tried to move us out from there, but we can't move out of that country. We're going to be on the land with our children, our great-grandparents, but they'll be, they're getting old already. No one will take us away from our own home. We have respect for them. They should respect us. Leave us on country. Don't take our life away. That's water. It's our life for everyone, not only for us. It's for non-Indigenous in any colours. We still drink the same water. The government have to listen to us how we live out in the bush. That's elder and traditional owner Auntie Nancy McDinney. You also heard from Barkindji elder Uncle Badger Bates. Before we leave you tonight, I want to let you know about the new ABC Indigenous podcast, Thin Black Line. It's a six-part series about the arrest and death of Aboriginal dancer Daniel Yock, presented by Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist Alan Clark. Here's a sample of what you can expect, and just a warning, this preview contains the names and voices of people who have died. On a spring day in 1993, a group of teenage boys are killing time in Brisbane's West End. With that sapling having to swim, and we sort of made our way back to Musgrave Park. Police sort of followed us from sapling, I think, and then they kept driving past when we was in the park. When they just kept doing laps and all, so we just decided, well, let's go, boys, because, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. They was driving behind us, they were real slow, eh, Bondi? And we started panicking, man. A police paddy wagon starts following them. Then a tense standoff begins and all hell breaks loose. Daniel was running behind me and I was sort of looking back as I was running and I could see him running, but he was sort of running slow motion. Daniel was laughed, they grabbed him. And I grabbed a stake out of the ground. I was swearing at the coppers. And I said, let him go, let him go. And he's just looking at me with one eye. That's when I started panicking him. When I seen him with one eye open, face down, handcuffed. Trying to feel for his pulse, but I couldn't because the handcuffs were so tight around him. By the end of the day... 18-year-old Aboriginal dancer Daniel Yock is dead in police custody. His death will trigger a two-decade-long fight for answers by his family and friends. On behalf of my family, I say that we charge the six officers and we charge the whole goddamn legal system. In a state infamous for police brutality and corruption, Daniel's death ignites an anger that will engulf the city. Fueled by decades of bad blood between the Murray community and the cops, 
Anger and frustration took violent form on the streets of Brisbane today. An inquiry rules the dancer's death as unsuspicious. It clears police of any wrongdoing, completely exonerates all officers. To say that our, our people kicked that poor lad to death, assaulted him, bashed him and everything else, uh, now's the time for them to come forward and apologise. They didn't arm themselves with uh, models or any forms of weapons. The boys hadn't done anything wrong, so the whole thing was absolute bullshit. The colours walked free. That's a preview of Thin Black Line, a new ABC Indigenous podcast presented by Alan Clark. You can subscribe to the podcast on the app ABC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts or visit abc.net.au forward slash Thin Black Line. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you the 2020 Charles Perkins Memorial Oration delivered by Auntie Pat Turner. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.